My name is Rich. I'm the other bald Italian co-lead pastor, and uh, it is uh, good to be with you all this morning. Um, I really appreciate you choosing to be present here with us. Um, There's something about worshiping together as a body, as a community, and each one of you play a part in making that special. So thank you for choosing to do so today. Those of you who are listening online through our live feed, I want to say thank you for participating in that way as well. Today we are in week six of our sermon series called One Brick at a Time, looking at the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And we're studying this not as a political teaching about building walls, just so we're clear, um, but because we actually believe this story that dates back all the way to 425 BC actually has important, powerful things to teach us people of Seattle in 2019. It's one of the things we love about the scriptures is that they are inspired by God and they actually speak to us still today. And so if you're here for the first time, we sincerely hope that you find this to be true. Those of you who have been here for some time, hopefully you've been finding this to be true as we've looked at this book and others. Uh, We're so glad you're here. As we dive in, I want to do a very quick review. I'm definitely not covering everything we've covered over the last six weeks, um, but I want us to at least get on the same page, especially for those of you who might be new. Nehemiah, the person we're looking at, was a Jew who was taken into captivity during a Babylonian reign over Israel. Somehow, while he's in captivity, he works his way up to this very powerful, important position with the king, and that is that being the cupbearer to the king, which is code word for poison control. And um, this is a trusted position. You don't want someone messing with the food that you have because you could die, but you also have to have some kind of situation with this person because they could die, right? And so there's a trust there. And this person, Nehemiah, worked his way up. As he's in this position, Nehemiah finds out that his home, the city of Jerusalem, has been destroyed. It's in ruins. It's um, all destroyed. Nothing's working there. People are gone, and he can't take it. He has a Popeye experience. He cannot take it anymore. He needs a spinach, essentially. And he spends 16 weeks weeping, praying before God, and God gives him this vision, this calling to rebuild the city, to rebuild this wall. And in this experience, he has this opportunity to go to the very king that he's the cupbearer for and tell him about this, to ask if he could go and do this work. In the process of doing that, he steps out in faith. He risks his life. He says, not only do I want to rebuild this to the king, but I want you, king, to pay for it all. And miraculously, the king says, sure, which is amazing. And in the process, this vision that he has to rebuild the city is much more than he can handle. And we see another amazing thing happen, and that is that um, Nehemiah and his leadership, in cooperation with God, recognizes this is a God-sized vision, and this is going to take everybody. And so we see this beautiful picture of God employing everyone according to their gifts and their skills and their abilities to help bring about this transformation of this city. Immediately, though, as they start doing this, they experience all kinds of trouble. People are saying, this is a dumb idea. You can't do this. There's other people saying, this is a horrible job. This thing's going to fall down. They have all these issues come about, but they keep going for it. And the people working together rebuild the walls. They rebuild the gates. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city. Along comes Ezra. Ezra comes, and he starts speaking and reading the book of the law. 
and starts reading it to the people. And these people hadn't heard the scriptures read for a very long time. And so they start hearing again these stories of God's faithfulness. But not only are they hearing these stories of God's faithfulness, they're reminded of this pattern. And this pattern's been going on since literally the beginning of creation. And that is humanity, including us today, trying to do life on our own. We want to do it our way. We get ourselves in trouble. We call out to God to save us. God in his goodness and grace and faithfulness does in fact save us. And instead of continuing with God, we go back to trying to do it our own way. And it's this pattern that's been echoing over and over throughout history. And these people are hearing it, reminded of them again as they look to the stories of God as Ezra's reading them. And it's very powerful because it's very familiar to them as well. So Ezra reads the Torah, reminds them of these stories of God's goodness, faithfulness, love, forgiveness, and acceptance. They're here in this place where the city that they had dwelled in and loved had been destroyed. Now they're re-inhabiting, and they have brought to a place of joy, celebration. They are ready to party. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we do, uh, I want to open us up in prayer. So pray with me. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness and your mercy. Thank you that you are here with us. And God, we do ask that even as we look at the word today, just like them back then, we would be reminded of your faithful presence to us, even in the midst of pure destruction, difficulties and heartache, God, that we would see that you're present, you're faithful, that you save us. And God, may it bring us to a place of joy. May it bring us a place where we can worship you more fully. And God, if we're going through difficult stuff, where I know some of us are, uh, we pray that we, we can hear you in the midst of the craziness and the busyness and all the things that life is throwing at us right now. Let us hear from you as well. And pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, hopefully you came with your Bible. We are at church, right? So it's probably a good thing to have. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. But if you do, I would love it if you'd open it to Nehemiah chapter 11. We're going to start with chapter 11, verse 1. And again, if you don't have the Bible with you, that's fine. Um, on our various walls, the scripture will be displayed there for us. But I want us to start with Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, or chapter 11, verse 1. And it says this. Now the leaders of the people, oh, let me get it up here for you. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. And I want to pause really quick right there. I know we didn't get very far. Um, Prior to this rebuilding project, I want us to remember that this city up to this point was destroyed. No one was living there. Um, Everyone was living outside of the city in the surrounding areas because Jerusalem was in shambles. It wasn't safe. It was unprotected. It had zero economy. So no one's living there, right? And um, now things are rebuilt. They need people to come back. So we see in this verse um, that the leaders are starting to do that. And that's, and that's where we're going. The, the scripture continues. The rest of the people cast lot to bring out one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commanded all who volunteered, commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Excuse me, in Jerusalem. 
Now, real quick, this section should remind us of something we've learned over and over again through our past. If you've been going to church for any single time, you've probably heard this, and that is this idea of God asking for 10% of something. Oftentimes, it's our finances. Back then, it might be your flock. It might be anything that you have that God has given to you. And in doing so, it's a sign of worship. It's a sign of praise. It's a sign of trust. It's a way of saying everything I have ultimately, even though I might feel like I work for it, it's ultimately God who has given it to me. And so by giving this 10%, putting it aside, I'm giving worship and praise and thanks to God. And so God is saying here to keep 90% of everything I've given you, but I need 10%. Uh, for my purposes. I have some things I want to do here, and we see this echoed again here in chapter 11. The text says that the leaders are the ones who go first and settle there and start doing this. Then we see something else that happens that echoes throughout human history, and that um, is connected to a series we did not too long ago called Change. Maybe some of you remember this, but we talked about how as humans, even though we are designed the very nature by God to change, we avoid it. We do not like change. And so we learned about this, but if you don't remember it, that's fine. Here's a good question for you. Are you resistant to change? Are you resistant to change? Maybe this last kind of snowmageddon reminded you of your resistance to change. I heard even in our worship, the songs talking about rain and so worship leaders like, please not snow for the love of all that's holy, right? Because some of us aren't looking for that. Um, Are you resistant to change? It's a good question and I'm going to answer it for you and I'm going to just say yes, you all are. Every one of us in some form or fashion, some more than others, are resistant to change. And if you are, which you are, I just want you to know that you're in good company with all of humanity over the entire history of mankind. And what we're seeing here, though, is this idea of this picture of resisting change in Nehemiah. We have this small group of early adopters, these leaders, that are willing to step out. But most of the people, 70-80% of them, are kind of in the middle. They're reluctant to change. They're not interested yet in doing so. And it may take them a long time before they're really willing to enter into this change. And then there's this remaining 8 to 10% who are absolutely like, no way I'm going to change, probably going to die in their unwillingness to change. And the only reason why I bring that up is because I wonder even how much that represents our church and the church in our greater kind of city. How many of our churches are a resemblance of this? There's a small group of leaders that are willing to step out. There's a whole bunch that are kind of reluctant about it. And then there's another group that are like, nope. We see this echoed out through all of history. We see it echoed in Nehemiah. We have this small group that's actually willing to risk living in the city along with a high percentage that's just simply kind of there to continue to live outside of it, unwilling to change. It's interesting here. God's inviting him into something, and God's doing something. They're in the presence of that, and then, and yet a high percentage are still reluctant to enter into what God's doing. Chapter 11, though, continues with this list of all those who took the risk and put their lives on the line to be a part of the work that God was doing in Jerusalem. These people moved into the city. They started to inhabit 
the city. And this ties absolutely perfectly to our vision of being rooted in our community and serving our community that we purposely love and serve and are faithfully present in our community because we too believe that God is at work in our neighborhood and is calling each and every one of us to participate in our own unique ways to restore it to all that God had intended for it. So what I want us to hear is that in many ways, this calling that Nehemiah and the people of God at this time have to rebuild the city, this God-sized vision that's going to take everyone according to their own abilities and skills, is our calling as well for our city. This is exactly why we moved into this building in this neighborhood at this time. Because we believe God is calling us to partner with and to inhabit and to root ourselves to be lights of God's grace, to serve and to love this community. And so let me ask you, how have you been participating in this vision to inhabit and to love and serve our community? How are you participating in that? That's what we see happening here in the rest of chapter 11 and into chapter 12. It's this list of those who are willing to risk, to make the change, to inhabit, to love, to invest in, to serve the city of Jerusalem. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through this whole section and read all these crazy names and jobs like we did in chapter 3. Instead, I want us to jump ahead to chapter 12. And we're going to go to chapter 12, verse 27. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along. But that's what's been going on, this giant list of these people who are willing to risk and lay into inhabiting this city that's now being restored. Then we get to chapter 12, verse 27, and it says this dedication is about to happen. And it says this, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites who were kind of the pastors and priests of the day, were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Now, there's something interesting in this text that we might not see initially, and it surrounds the word that's being used here, which is the word dedication. Dedication is oftentimes translated this way or oftentimes with the word consecrated. And it generally means set apart. Um, And we see that happen. You might remember that that conversation about that 10%. That's a good example, putting something and setting it apart, taking it away, putting it over here for a particular purpose. Or you may remember in chapter 3, the priest moved out of the temple into the neighborhood and start dedicating the wall that's being built. They're setting it apart, and it's this beautiful picture of God's presence moving out of the temple into the neighborhood. Why? To set it apart, to make it holy. What's interesting here, though, in chapter 12, this word dedication here is not the same word that we see in chapter 3 and elsewhere. This word here in chapter uh, 12 is actually the word Hanukkah. It's the Jewish word that we use for that we've heard over and over again for that celebration that the Jews have. And this word is different from being set apart for holy purposes. It's really much more about this idea of a fresh start. 
the Jewish people would celebrate this day of Hanukkah to remember a time back in 168 BC where, very similar to Nehemiah's story, a Syrian king had taken over the Jews, had forbid people from practicing Judaism, and turned their temple into an altar for the Greek god Zeus. And so then this miraculous small group of Jewish people called the Maccabees revolted of this oppression, fought the Syrians, and reclaimed their temple. And that is what marked this celebration, this dedication we know as Hanukkah. It was a party, a celebration of the sign that God was with them, that they were not alone, and that God had provided and blessed and was giving them a fresh start. Now, I'm not Jewish, and I'm not going to cover everything about this holiday, but you get the idea. It's about God giving the people of God a fresh start. Now, the thing about fresh starts, or do-overs, if you will, when you get them, is it brings joy. And if you just think about it for a moment, when the last time you wanted a fresh start or you experienced one or you wanted a redo and you had that moment, it typically happens when we mess up, right? We did something we, we feel bad about, we made a mistake. Maybe it was the outcome of something didn't turn out quite like we wanted it to. Maybe our day didn't go as we planned. There was a curveball of some kind. Maybe um, you said something you wish you hadn't. Um, and so you want a fresh start. You want to restart. Anybody here ever feel like, man, I'd love a do-over right now, right? You might even feel it right now. This is exactly what's going on here in Nehemiah. And as we go through chapter 11 and chapter 12, it's moving us. We're seeing God bringing about a fresh start to Jerusalem. And this is what this dedication that's being talked about is all about. It's a celebration of this new work that God is doing in this city, the city of God that had been destroyed and had been in ruin where these people who had been displaced are now being able to come back and move into this place and have a fresh start. So you can imagine there's a joyful, celebrative party that's about to happen as a result. And we have to remember that they got to this place having moved through it, being destroyed, and all the work to get to this place. It didn't just out of nowhere happen. So let's look um, at this party that starts, and we're going to do that starting in verse 31. And I'm just going to tell you right now, there's a bunch of crazy names, and I'm going to hit some of them, and I may or may not just blast through a bunch. So um, if you want to talk to me about pronunciation later, you're welcome to. Uh, Chapter 12, starting with verse 31, it says this. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hashiana and half the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shehemiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shehemiah, the son of Motahiah, the son of Malachi, and the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates, and a bunch of other people with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. 
I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate to Ephraim, and the Jesai gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. And at the gate of the guard, they stopped. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there. Real quick question, though, as a reminder. Who built the wall? Everyone. Thank you. Everyone built the wall, and that's important for us to remember. The goldsmith, the perfume guy, the priest, the baker, men, women, children, everyone did their part to make this happen, right? And so we have this scene, this picture, where half the people climb to the top of the wall and head one way, and the other half climb up on the wall and head the other way. Lining the wall, all the leaders and all those who helped build this thing. It's a pretty amazing picture. And what I want us to notice that in the text, we don't see anything where these people are doing what we probably would do, which is pausing and having everybody look at the section they did and like bragging about it, right? The goldsmith guy's like, yeah, check out my section. It's made of pure gold, right? And the perfume guy's like, yeah, mine smells terrific, right? Um, Or whatever, right? That's what we would do as we're going around the wall. We'd be like, look at that one, look at that one, look at that one. This is the one I did. Look at how great it is. We don't see any of that. They are focusing on something else, not about what they did. It's very different, and it's important for us to see. Now, the text continues to help us see it. It says this in verse 40. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials as well as the priests. It continues, verse 42. The choir sang under the direction of Jezariah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing. Why? Because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And my favorite image here, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Can you imagine this? 50,000 people all surrounding, all on this wall, and they're celebrating their choir, their worship, so loud that it could be heard for miles away. Now, when I read stuff like this, it always makes me go, how cool. And could God do something like this again? Like right here in Seattle, in our neighborhoods. What if the sound of rejoicing that came out of one life could be heard for miles? Or what if the celebration that was happening on Sunday by all the churches in the city were united in worshiping God in such a way that it could be heard all over the place? That the the 12th man that our city is known for is like blown away because everybody is rejoicing and worshiping God. But it also makes me ponder whether I actually have this kind of joy. Do I experience this which then makes me wonder do you do you experience joy like this um, and then it makes me wonder am I, if I'm the only one that, that struggles with experiencing joy all the time which then makes me go what in the world is this whole joy thing like how what is it we're talking about how do we experience it I don't know what it is I struggle with it 
And so I want us to talk about that. There's this book that I read a long time ago, and as I was listening to uh, another pastor teach on this, he, he reminded me of it. And it's a book called The Cycle of Grace, Living in Sacred Balance. And it's by a guy named Trevor Hudson and Jerry Haas. And they did this extensive study on pastors, missionaries, lay people, nonprofits, anyone doing ministry in some form or fashion, globally, locally. And the study was, why is it that some, all doing the same kind of ministry, come to a place of burnout and depression, while others doing the same work come out with joy and zeal? And did this big study of it. It's a pretty fascinating book. And what he found was there was these four kind of what he calls cycles of grace, these categories that the people who experienced the most joy participated in. And so I want us to look at it real briefly, and I want us to ponder it for our own story with regards to how we are doing with joy. So it starts with the first cycle of grace, which is this word acceptance. Those who experienced more joy were those who had a deep sense of being unconditionally accepted by God loved by God at home and in relationship with God all the time. The more they felt accepted by God, the more they were able to experience joy. And so real quick, just in your own, I just want you to think about that for a minute. How confident do you find yourself in your day-to-day experiencing the beauty of the acceptance that God has for us? Do you even think about that? And if you find yourself struggling with being accepted of God, I want you to be thinking about this because this is where it starts. The second cycle of grace is this word sustenance, which what they're talking about here is basically these spiritual practices, things that lead to spiritual nourishment. And so maybe you remember our previous series we did on praxis. Those who experienced more joy versus burnout were those who prayed regularly. They had a small community of believers that they hung out with and interacted with and held each other accountable with, served with. They, they practiced Sabbath. They were good stewards of their finances. So, so they, they had these spiritual practices, these habits, these disciplines that they did regularly to fuel their spiritual nourishment. So again, the question there is, are you spiritually taking care of yourself like you do with your own food? Are you feeding yourself spiritually? And it has an effect on our experience of joy. The third cycle is this idea of significance or identity, and this is tied to meaning and purpose. Those who experience the most um, joy were tapped into this idea of their identity. And the best way to think about it is taking that word significance, the first four letters, is the word sign. Those who experienced more joy found themselves recognizing that their life was um, a sign to other people, that God is at work in them and through them. It doesn't mean everything's perfect, but they are a light. They are a testimony to people that God is for real. So when you think of your own story in your day-to-day life, do you live in such a way where you recognize what you're doing and what you're saying and your actions and all this kind of stuff, that you are representing Jesus, that you are a signpost, if you will, to others? And if not, why? 
The last section, this cycle, is this idea of achievement or fruitfulness. Those who had more joy had a sense that the results of the work that the ministry they were doing was successful or fruitful. And we all get this. We've all had those experiences when we're working hard on something day in and day out, and uh, it doesn't seem to be working. And what happens, right? We get frustrated. We get depressed. We get burned out. We don't want to do it anymore, right? Well, same thing with ministry. It doesn't matter what it is. Those who were able to find the stories, the glimpses of God at work in the midst of whatever they were doing, the more actively aware they were of that, that God was at work in and through them, had an effect on their joy. Which is why we keep talking about we want to hear stories, big and small, of what God is doing, because we all need that encouragement. We don't want to be burned out. We want to hear about what God is doing. So how is that for you? In your day-to-day life, are you seeing God at work? Are you hearing the stories of God blessing and doing something in the midst of what you're doing? Now, I bring this up just as examples for us to assess our own stories and our levels of joy and, and, or what we're experiencing in our day-to-day life. This is not like the be-all, end-all, but they're helpful to consider at the end of the day because every day we come through difficulties, stuff that could affect our ability to experience joy. But I think what's most important is that we go back and look at the person who teaches us the most about joy which um, we're all in church, so if I was to ask who teaches us the most about joy, we'd all say, yeah, Jesus, nice. Uh, so since Jesus is the, the one life, the center of all that we do, I think we should look at that. And so I want to just look at one example where Jesus teaches us about joy that's a really helpful one, and it comes in the book of John, chapter 16. And um, it's going to start with verse 16, and Jesus is here talking to his disciples, And um, he says this, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. To which the disciples are like, what you talking about, Jesus? What what does that mean? Um, And then it goes on. It says, at this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then in a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, and they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Which is so classic human, right? Like we have all these questions, but we don't actually ask the person to help us understand. Thankfully, this is Jesus. And so Jesus brilliantly says, uh, goes on to say, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. I love that about Jesus. So he said to me, are you asking one another What I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and in a little while later you will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. And everybody's like, what? That doesn't sound good. He continues, Jesus says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he gives us an image. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. What is he saying here? Jesus is trying to tie two things together that are really important for us to understand with regards to joy. He's tying together immense joy with grief and pain. 
And we've heard this before, but I want to declare it again. There's this lie that's out there that says as Christians, we don't have grief and pain. That because we have a relationship with God, everything's great and everything works out. And if you're experiencing grief and pain, you're doing something wrong. And I want you to hear that if that's the truth, then I am also doing it wrong. Because I don't know about you, I experience grief and pain quite often. Even this last week, we've heard a number of incredibly heartbreaking stories connected to people in our congregation. We deal with pain and grief a lot. Now, it continues, verse 22 says, So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Now, the thing about this book and this cycle of grace, that when I think about it and I think about the authors, I actually think this is a pretty spot-on cycle because at the end of the day, I think it actually represents the example we see in Jesus. And so if you think about Jesus, you remember when he's about to start his public ministry, he goes to get baptized, this dove comes out, and we hear the voice of God, and what does the voice of God say? This is my son, my beloved son. I'm so pleased. He's amazing, right? It's this picture of God's utter acceptance of his son. This is my child. I couldn't feel any more connected to this person. It's incredible joy. It's the deepest form of acceptance, the father to the son. And all through Jesus' ministry, he comes back to this. It didn't just happen one time. It happens over and over again. Why? Well, because if you think of Jesus' story, pretty much almost everyone he came into contact with ultimately was not too hip about him. Many even wanted him dead. So if you imagine, what would it look like to manage joy when pretty much everyone hates you, right? Jesus could do it because he was completely and utterly convinced. He knew that the Father loved him no matter what. And nothing could take that away from him. And if you continue with Jesus' example, not only did he have this acceptance completely solidified, but who took better spiritual care of themselves than Jesus? The scriptures say every morning before the sun arise, he went out to pray. This was a discipline of his. He surrounded himself with other people to invest in and to be encouraged by. He had a group of people that he served with, and he would connect with his community and connect with people he didn't even have relationships with. No no kind of requirements needed. He would bless and serve people. He had these disciplines that he involved into his day-to-day life. On top of that, There's no one who is more significant in our world, in our history, than Jesus. No one's ever fully understood and lived out their life with meaning and purpose like Jesus did. As we said, the first four letters of significant is the word sign, being an example of God. Jesus wasn't just a person who did this every once in a while, right? Jesus is, as the scripture says in Hebrews 1, 3, he's the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the exact representation of God. There's no better sign of God, no one more significant than Jesus. And if that's not enough, 
Jesus did the hardest, most crazy work ever to be done, right? Taking care of all of humanity's sin, past, present, future, he did the work needed to make it happen, to make it possible for each and every one of us in this room, each and every person out there, each and every person you know, to have a relationship with God, to experience the most absolute, complete, perfect love of God. Jesus did the work and achieved it. The scriptures actually say it is finished. So because of what Jesus did for all of humanity, our sins are no longer counted against us. That's the significant role Jesus plays in every human's life. Amen? Amen. That's amazing. Jesus is the perfect example for us of this cycle of grace, and he's this perfect example of joy. Now, here's our problem, is that we don't start where Jesus starts or where he wants us to start. See, we don't start with acceptance by God. We start with, look what I've done, right? We start with achievement because we think Whatever those achievements are that we've done, that's what's getting us accepted, right? So if I work harder or I score more goals or I play the right notes or I have the kind of humor or whatever it is, the educate you name it, whatever that achievement is, we use that to try to get our acceptance. And we, we believe this lie, and the book talks about this as a cycle of grief, Right, that out of that achievement comes our identity. It's always dependent, and it's always getting messed with, which drives us to this way of living that doesn't create any acceptance whatsoever because it's always based on the wrong thing. And sadly, every relationship we have, pretty much every religion we have, is based with this idea as well, that the way you're accepted is about your achievements. Christianity is the only one that says, actually, you can't do anything. There's nothing you can accomplish that's going to make you acceptable. The only thing that can make you acceptable is what Jesus did. Because Jesus took on all that you and I and everyone deserved condemnation for but couldn't get out of. He stepped into our place and paid the price that we could never pay for or work out on our own. And as a result we can now have joy because Jesus was willing to go into all of that on our behalf. So look at what the scripture says. Jesus says to the disciples in verse 22, it says, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Which sounds cool, but if you're like me, you're kind of like, wait a minute, I still got some questions about this whole joy thing, right? Because what am I supposed to do uh, when I find out a loved one just passed away? Or how am I supposed to experience joy when I lose my job? Or when I find out I got cancer? Or something happens to one of my kids? Or whatever it is, how am I supposed to do that? I mean, if joy is this kind of overwhelming sense that all is going to be well because God is with us... If that's what joy is, then how am I supposed to experience this when my situations and circumstances are not showing to be true? How does that happen? Well, it happens because in the scriptures we get taught this idea about the kingdom of God. And it sounds a little crazy to attach it to this, 
But when you think about what we understand of the kingdom of God, we understand that the kingdom of God is here in some ways and yet not completely here. We've heard this phrase already but not yet. And so I want you to think about this with regards to joy in our stories. So if you're like me, you, um, you probably don't live your day-to-day life from morning to evening filled with inexpressible joy. Uh, maybe you do. Um, maybe you got up this morning and there was no coffee and all of a sudden your inexpressible joy is, turns into expressible anger, right? Uh, it could be anything. Maybe you're like me and your day-to-day goes by where you're not experiencing inexpressible joy at any moment. But if you're like me, there are moments where you do. You get a glimpse. You get an experience. You see something, a reminder of the goodness of God that is to come. It might be brief. It might be for an hour. It might be with friends. It might be a result that happens at work or something that brings you this sense of joy. But it's not complete, right? It's just a glimpse It reminds us of what is to come in the future that we will be filled with. A life that's already here in some ways, but not completely and totally here yet. So, for example, with Jesus, we always talk about Jesus being victorious over death and uh, conquering death. And he actually raised people from the dead, three people from the dead. But if you think about it, how many people did he come into contact with who are going to die? Everyone, right? Uh, so this ability to raise people from the dead is present. But it's not completely here for everyone yet, right? And it's the same with joy. Joy is here partly. We get moments of it, but it's also not all the way here. And so we long for it. And so verse 23 says, in that day, when Jesus brings us the absolute fullness of the kingdom of God to have full joy in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will ask you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So Jesus gave up his joy so that we could be accepted. We could be nourished. We could be significant. We could be fruitful. And the most beautiful thing about all of this is that none of this has anything to do with our achievements. It has nothing to do with our education. It doesn't have anything to do with how much hair you have on your head. Thank God. Uh, It has nothing to do with any of those things. It's all based on the acceptance we have from God through Jesus. And so we see, as a result, the joy is different from this happiness. Because it's not based on our situations and circumstances. It's based solely on being accepted by God. Being accepted as a child of God, just like Jesus. This is my son whom I'm pleased that the God of the universe sees that of you. But that eventually things will be well when that day comes. Jesus says, my joy in you will make your joy fill. 
to overflowing because of what I did for you. Now, I'm going to close us in prayer in just a moment, and I want to invite the worship and the prayer team to come forward. Um, And they're going to give us some space to ponder this a little more with our stories, because I know we're all coming from different situations and circumstances, and some of us are in the place right now where we're experiencing some joy. Maybe we just came off a vacation. Maybe we're... uh, something happened, we got a raise, whatever, and we're in a moment of joy. And I know there are others here that are going through really difficult times, and there's some that are all in between. My invitation for us is to then take this space to think about how what we've talked about could apply to you. Um, So maybe you're in a place where you are just needing a fresh start. And I hope you hear the invitation from God that that is there for you right now. Or maybe you're feeling um, challenged to inhabit your neighborhood at a different level, right? That the story of this God at work in the city is reminding you of you having a role to play in that and you want to join in. Or maybe you realize that um, you need to think about the parts of this cycle of grace and how you need to rethink how you enter into it and start with acceptance and not achievement, Maybe you're in a space that feels a lot more like labor pains and you're hurt and uh, everything about what's going on right now is very hard to see and experience joy. And I just want you to hear today, and maybe you could just soak in it a bit, that joy and grief are tied together. Whatever it is, I want you to feel free to use this space however you want, to pray, to confess, uh, to give thanks, to receive, to be filled, to dream, um, whatever you feel called to in this place. And I also want to remind you that over here in the corner, there's these two ladies over here. That's part of our prayer team. And whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you want to celebrate, whatever, they are there. They would love to pray for you um, and just be with you. So please take advantage of that. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we're going to have some space where the band will play instrumentally. Uh, And then uh, in a little bit, they are going to invite us to sing one last song of response. Um, So please take advantage of this time. And if you want to share anything that you're going through, you can use that connection card. Um, We would love to hear from you, um, however you feel called to. Um, Let me close us in prayer. We'll take some time to reflect, and then we'll sing a song of response. Father, Son, Spirit, I just confess again how much I long to experience the joy that is to come. And yet, God, I know I struggle with it all the time. And sometimes I feel um, almost manic where one minute I'm feeling joy and the next minute I'm depressed. And so, God, I just pray for each and every one of us that wherever we are in that spectrum, that we would know you are with us, that you accept us. And God, with every breath we breathe, we would know it is a sign of your grace giving us another start, a fresh start, and that we're not alone. And that that would bring us joy, no matter what the situation is and circumstance and that in that place 
whether it's the labor pains of life or, or the holding that baby place of life or where, wherever we are, that we would be able to find ways to worship you, that our city would hear us give you praise. You are so good, Lord. Help us build our life on you, not our achievements. Help us celebrate the fresh start that you give us at every moment as we go about our day-to-day and help us be aware of your presence, your goodness, and your grace with us that we might share it with others. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.